from Diversion Podcast in association with iHeartRadio. This is the GOAT, Tom Brady. Episode 4, Tom Takes the Torch. September 11, 2001 was the worst day in the history of the United States. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Four planes were hijacked, two from Logan Airport in Boston, one from Newark Airport in New Jersey, and one from Dulles Airport in Virginia. One of the Boston planes crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. The other Boston plane crashed into the South Tower. Both towers collapsed. Thousands of lives were lost. The Dulles plane crashed into the Pentagon, and the passengers on the Newark plane stormed the cockpit and forced the hijackers to crash in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The act of heroism likely saved many lives with the White House potentially the hijackers intended target. Nobody will ever forget where they were on 9-11. I live about 40 miles from the World Trade Center towers, which stood at the southern tip of Manhattan. The end of my street in the suburbs is on a bit of a hill, and that day I had a clear view of the smoke from the burning buildings billowing in the air. That was a Tuesday morning. Two days earlier, the NFL opened the 2001 season. The Patriots began with a loss in Cincinnati. The results of week one were quickly relegated to insignificance with the country grieving before it could turn its attention to healing. Sports was not on anybody's mind. Even so, the NFL had to make a decision about that weekend's games. The Giants and Jets players had already informed the NFL that they would boycott their games if the league tried to play. The city of New York was emotionally devastated and the smell of fire was still in the air. And many players around the league also expressed no desire to get back on the field so soon. NFL Commissioner Paul Tagliabue had no choice, but he also did the right thing by canceling the games from week two and tacking them on to the end of the regular season. His predecessor and mentor, Pete Rozelle's biggest regret in his 29 years as commissioner was not canceling games two days after President Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. Welcome to The GOAT, Tom Brady. I'm Gary Myers, author of the New York Times bestseller, Brady vs. Manning, and thanks so much for listening. I apologize for the somber beginning, but it ties into the most patriotic day in NFL history and one of the few moments in time that you can say without hesitation that an injury on the field completely changed the course of history in the NFL. This is episode four, Tom Takes the Torch. September 23rd, 2001 was a Sunday the NFL resumed play. It was 12 days after 9-11. In practice that week, Patriots owner Robert Kraft approached guard Joe Andruzzi during warmups with a request. Andrewsy was from Staten Island, and his three brothers were members of the New York Fire Department who responded to the terrorist attacks at the towers. Their father was an NYPD captain. Kraft invited Andrewsy's brothers and father to be honored before the game against the New York Jets. 
Joe Andrusi's three brothers were named honorary captains. Pre-game and halftime ceremonies honored the victims and first responders. Here's what Robert Kraft remembers. That was one of the special moments of, you know, owning the team when you see three guys come out in NYFD unis, you know, and their dad, who was a New York captain in the police force, leading our team out and our fans going nuts, cheering for New Yorkers. And I think it's the only time it's ever happened at our stadium. Yeah. And then, you know, we played that game and Mo Lewis laid the lick on Drew, sent him to the hospital, and Brady comes on and, you know, we win 11 of the next 14 games and go to the Super Bowl again and have the privilege of winning our first Super Bowl in franchise history. American flags adorn cars tailgating in the parking lot of Foxborough Stadium. The Patriots are playing the hated Jets, but on this day, at least during player introductions, they were the beloved Jets. They were from New York. Everybody's heart broke for New York. Patriotism was in the air. It was also the day a life-threatening chest injury to Drew Bledsoe on a ferocious fourth-quarter hit by Jets linebacker Mo Lewis created the opportunity for Tom Brady to become the starting quarterback for the Patriots. Playing in that game was unexpected for Brady, but he was prepared. I try to express this to younger players because it's the it's kind of the attitude that I took was, you, know, you always feel like you should be the one in there regardless of whether you should be or shouldn't be. I mean, you always have to have the attitude that you know, you're the best guy for the team. Right. You know, the coach makes the choice. You know, so I, I always wanted to you know, get in there and show them what I could do. Brady showed Bill Belichick a lot. He held on to the job for 19 years. Let's take a quick step back before I give you my first-hand account of that day. I left off last time with Brady's draft day agony in 2000. He was finally taken by Belichick in the sixth round, the 199th player overall. The Patriots quarterback depth chart had three returning players, Bledsoe, veteran backup John Fries, and second-year player Michael Bishop, a seventh-round pick. Brady had a distinct advantage in his bid to make the team. He was the only one of the four quarterbacks brought in by Belichick. Belichick inherited the other three. At least Brady could make himself believe Belichick was invested in him. He wasn't going to beat out Bledsoe, of course, but he had a chance to stick around. It was the opposite situation of what Brady faced when he arrived at Michigan. Billy Harris, who was the Wolverines' West Coast scout and assistant coach who recruited Brady, and head coach Gary Moeller, who traveled to his home in San Mateo to assure him how much he wanted him, were both gone within months of his commitment. Brady had no previous connection to defensive coordinator Lloyd Carr, who was promoted to replace Moeller. It's very unusual that an NFL team keeps four quarterbacks on its roster. Belichick liked what he saw of Brady in training camp and didn't want to risk running him through waivers which was required before a player can be placed on the practice squad. Besides, Brady had a reasonable sixth-round rookie contract, and the Patriots had major salary cap problems, so he was cheap labor and a good fit. Here's Scott Pioli, the Patriots' director of player personnel and Belichick's right-hand man. People don't even realize this, Gary. There was a point in time during the 2000 season, because of salary cap reasons and lack of talent, 
we didn't have, even have 53 guys on our roster. We went through a couple weeks with 51 guys on our roster. People don't even remember that. I remember that clearly. We took over a mess. People don't realize how much of a mess we took over. Kraft loves telling the story of the first time he met Brady. It was soon after he was drafted in 2000. My first memory of was when in the old stadium, do you remember the parking lot in front of the building? Mm -hmm. It's about 7.30 or 8 at night. And, uh, on the old steps, and I parked right in front. I mean, there was a trailer was the pro shop. You know, we had a trailer. Yeah, I, I remember was, that. It was a whole, and so we parked. There was no, everyone was together. The workers who were ticket takers and coaches. and I mean, we all, there was one entrance. There was one everything. So I'm giving my cars about quarter of eight night, and uh, it's a skinny kid was, couple pizza boxes and Mr. Kraft. I said, I know who you are, you're Tom Brady, our sister. Yeah, he looked me in the eye, really firmly, shaking my hand. And he says, I'm the best decision this organization has ever made. He was the fourth, he was the fourth quarterback on the depth chart. Brady laughs when he hears Kraft tell this story. His version is a bit different, not quite so cocky, but the point is the same. He had an awful lot of confidence. He felt so good about his Patriots' future that he called former Michigan teammate Aaron Shea during his first training camp and told him that he was going to buy a house in New England. His friend suggested he make the team first. Oh, Brady said, I'm going to make the team. We'll be right back with more of the GOAT, Tom Brady, in just a moment. His rookie year was similar to his redshirt year at Michigan. He did a lot of watching, although he did manage to get into one game and attempt three passes. Belichick was impressed with Brady's leadership skills and how he took charge of the rookies. But going into the offseason leading into year two, the Patriots were not making plans for an imminent Brady takeover of the quarterback position. Prior to training camp, Kraft signed Bledsoe to a 10-year, $103 million contract, at the time the richest in NFL history, and on the surface, it appeared to make Bledsoe a patriot for life. Bledsoe thought so. So did Kraft. Kraft was one year away from opening his new $325 million stadium that he paid for himself without any public money. But he needed fans to buy tickets. He wanted to prove he was all about stability and the vagabond days of the franchise were over, and he was a local owner who wanted the team to win even more than the fans. Signing Bledsoe, he thought, was a sign of good faith to the fans. So even though Bledsoe was just 5-11 in Belichick's first season in 2000, he had already been to one Super Bowl, he was just 29 years old, a fan favorite, and Kraft made the long-term commitment to keep him. At this point, Brady was just a nice kid with the pizza box. Kraft was saying Bledsoe had a chance to be remembered with Ted Williams, Bill Russell, and Larry Bird. Boston sports royalty all played their entire careers in Beantown. Bledsoe was the indisputable face of the franchise. Brady, if he played well that summer, had a chance to jump to number two on the depth chart. Bledsoe may have been very popular in Boston, but there was at least one person who was not a big fan. Bill Belichick. They just never hit it off. Bledsoe was picked first overall by Bill Parcells in 1993 and later played for Parcells in Dallas. He was Parcells' guy. He was not Belichick's guy. 
Now time out for a quick bit of trivia that is part of Bledsoe's legacy. He lost starting jobs in New England to Tom Brady and in Dallas to Tony Romo. Otherwise, he had a productive 14-year career. Anyway, Bledsoe didn't consider Brady a threat to his job after observing him in practice his rookie year. He looked at Brady more like a little brother than his competition. He liked him immediately, and they became good friends. Here's Drew Bledsoe. He was over at our house for a handful of times when he was a rookie, and my uh, wife really liked him, and he knew the kids. Just really kind, just a, just a, just a good person. He was somebody that, that it was just very easy to like and get along with. And uh, probably the highest praise that I could pay him it was that my, uh, you know, when he was when he was a rookie and hadn't really done anything yet, I actually called my financial advisor and said, "Hey, you know, I know, you know, I know you guys only take on clients that you like and believe in, and it doesn't really necessarily matter what their net worth is. People that are that are good to uh, good to deal with." I said, "I've got a kid here. He may never be a starter in the NFL, uh, but he's just a good person, and you and you, yeah, you'd enjoy the relationship because he's been, you know, but." Yeah, I think my quote was, he'll probably never be a starter in the NFL, but he'll probably be around for 10 years. People told me that you, you kind of looked at him as a little brother. Um, yeah, that, yeah, yeah I, I think that's probably true. I mean, I, we had him, uh, yeah, he was, he, was, he was around the house. We had little kids at that point, and, and uh, just is and, and, all, and always has been just a good person. Even though he stole my damn job, it, it, it still makes it really easy to cheer for him because he's just a good person. Did, did he ever babysit the kids? Bledsoe thought more of Brady as a person than he did as a player who was going to take his job going into his second season. He was just good. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't great. He wasn't exceptional. He wasn't, you know, he could throw the ball to the right place and make the right read. And, uh, you know, did a nice job running scout team. But it certainly was when he was a rookie. And even, you know, even training camp the second year, it, was, it wasn't a situation where I felt like, oh, no, this guy's going to beat me out to take my job. Bledsoe was not aware that Belichick was falling in love with Brady and actually wanted to name him the starter going into the 2001 season opener in Cincinnati. Scott Pioli fills us in. We were talking about it. It was an ongoing conversation. And why didn't he? There were a lot of things at play. We had a quarterback that was under a contract that had been proven. He was established in a lot of ways. He was the face of the franchise, mm-hmm. and his skills hadn't completely declined. Here's some of the factors that prevented Belichick from benching Bledsoe and starting Brady to open the season. One, Belichick went through hell in Cleveland in 1993, his third year with the Browns, when he benched and then eventually cut quarterback Bernie Kosar in the middle of the season. Kosar was a local hero from Boardman, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland, and Belichick was an outsider from the Giants. Guess who the fans sided with? Not Bill Belichick. Although he was eventually proven to be right to move on from Kozar and replace him with Vinny Testaverde, Belichick lost the Browns' fan support. Two, Kraft was extremely fond of Bledsoe. He had just signed him to that $103 million contract in the offseason. How could Belichick possibly bench Bledsoe before he played even one game under the new contract? The answer, he couldn't. The fact is, Brady outplayed Bledsoe by a lot in his second training camp in 2001. Belichick told Kraft that Brady had the most impressive training camp of anyone on the team. 
But Kraft insists Belichick never mentioned to him that he was considering going with Brady to open the season and says if he was, he would have discussed it with him. Realistically, unless Belichick had decided to make that kind of drastic move, there was no reason to involve Kraft at all. But he sure did think long and hard about making the change. If there were no extenuating factors, Belichick would have gotten rid of Bledsoe, started Brady, and kept John Fries as the backup, or brought in another veteran. Instead, his hands were tied, and he stuck with Drew Bledsoe. The Patriots opened the season with a 23-17 loss to the Bengals, a team that would finish the season with a 6-10 record. Bledsoe played well enough, throwing for 241 yards with two touchdowns and no interceptions, but he was sacked four times. In one season plus one game, Belichick was now 5-12 with Bledsoe as his quarterback. Remember, Kraft had given up a first-round draft choice to pry Belichick away from the Jets, ignoring the advice of seemingly half the NFL who told him he should run far away from Belichick. When Kraft initially could not work out a draft choice compensation deal with Jets general manager Bill Parcells to free Belichick from his contract, he was frustrated. He needed a coach and he was deep into January. He was within days of giving up on Belichick and hiring Dom Capers, who was his fallback candidate. Capers, the former coach of the Carolina Panthers, was a distant second choice, but at least he would not have cost a first round draft pick. And he probably would have not been any worse than Belichick's five and 12. But Parcells called in a conciliatory mood and he and Kraft came to terms on the deal for Belichick. But now, how long would it take for Kraft to admit Belichick was a mistake? The pressure was intensifying for Belichick to get the Patriots turned around. Then 9-11 happened. The country was attacked. About 3,000 people died. The country was in mourning. Whether Belichick deserved continued employment with the New England Patriots was no longer a topic of conversation. I mean, for the time being, who cared? The season resumed 12 days later as a bit of normalcy returned. Despite the emotional atmosphere at the Jets-Patriots game, Belichick's team lost 10-3. The most noteworthy event was Bledsoe running to his right towards the Jets' sidelines, trying to convert a 3rd and 10 late in the 4th quarter. Instead of ducking out of bounds 2 yards short and playing it safe, he cut inside trying to pick up the first down and was leveled by Mo Lewis, a 258-pound linebacker. Bledsoe looked like he ran into a brick wall. He somehow returned for the next series, but was out of sorts calling plays. If somebody asked him to count to 10, he may not have made it past one if he got that far. Belichick later explained Bledsoe had his bell rung, which is how coaches used to describe concussions in the barbaric days of the NFL. Soon it would be discovered that the concussion was the least of Bledsoe's health issues. We'll be back with more of the GOAT, Tom Brady, right after this. On the Patriots' last series, which began with 2.16 left in the game, I was standing around the 20-yard line on the Jets' side of the field. At the old Foxborough Stadium, the media would use the same ramps as the fans exiting the stadium in order to make their way to the locker room. It was always a good idea to get downstairs early to avoid the rush. I had seen Bledsoe get hurt when I was in the press box. Then I went down to the field. 
I was watching from the sidelines with Ian O'Connor, who used to work with me at the New York Daily News before leaving for new journalism adventures. When Bledsoe didn't run back on the field with the offense for what turned out to be the Patriots' last series, the public address announcer said, now in a quarterback, number 12, Tom Brady. Full disclosure, I was not much of a college football fan 20 years ago. Following the NFL was time consuming. I looked at O'Connor and said, who's that guy? O'Connor at least heard of Brady and knew a little bit about his career at Michigan. This game is over, I thought. The Patriots' season is over. Belichick is going to get fired. Brady came in and tried to move the Patriots into position to get the tying touchdown and send the game into overtime. He did pick up three first downs, but the game ended with Brady throwing three incompletions, a couple of them towards the end zone. The Tom Brady era had just started without anyone noticing. Really, my first year, I was really lucky that I didn't play because I wasn't prepared to play. And then when I did get my chance, you know, Drew took a pretty serious injury at that time. Right. The season flew by, but I was just, I and mean, I was trying to do the best I could do, and I was relying basically on what I had learned in college in my first year in the pros on how to play quarterback. So, you know, it was pretty unheralded to that point. After the game, I wasn't concerned much with Bledsoe's injury or with the kid quarterback who finished up. I was writing for a New York audience. Vinny Testaverde, the Jets quarterback, was showing me a poster on a wall near his locker of the New York Police Department and the New York Fire Department officers who died as heroes trying to rescue people in the terrorist attack. Vinny told me that before the game, he was looking at the poster and spotted the picture of a former high school teammate, one of his wide receivers. Vinny is from Elmont on Long Island, and he was one of the Jets who said he wouldn't play if the games the weekend after 9-11 were not canceled. He was already playing with a heavy heart. The picture of his fallen friend made it even heavier. Bledsoe, meanwhile, was woozy after the game, was planning to go home until he was intercepted by team trainer Ron O'Neill as he walked off the field on his way into the locker room. He was escorted to be examined by team doctor Bert Zarens, and he was now feeling some pain in his chest. Normally with a concussion, the heart rate slows. Bledsoe's heart was racing. That was a red flag. The trainers cut his uniform off, he took a quick shower, and was soon on a gurney being transported to an ambulance on the way to Massachusetts General Hospital. It's a good thing the Patriots medical staff did not let him go home as he had planned. He had a sheared blood vessel in his chest. He almost died on the way to the hospital. Here's what Bledsoe told me. I told uh, Ronnie O'Neill and Bert Zarin, he's like, yeah, yeah, let's go home. I'll go and sleep on it. I'll, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. And, uh, yeah, I was bleeding. I was bleeding out internally at, at the rate of a liter an hour and seven liters of blood in my body. So oh, my God. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was bad. Bledsoe's younger brother, Adam, was at the game and a company drew in the ambulance to Mass General. The hospital was 30 miles from the stadium. The traffic was heavy on Route 1 North as the ambulance tried to maneuver around the congestion with fans leaving after the game. It wasn't until more than 10 years later that Adam described to Drew the scene in the ambulance. Here's Drew once again. My brother actually jumped in the ambulance with me to go to the, uh, go to the hospital and he thought I was going to die in the ambulance. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're going. I didn't know the story until like last year. Finally told me his perspective on the story. So we were driving to the hospital and they couldn't give me anything for pain because I'm allergic to morphine and you know, uh, Abdul's a blood thinner and they figured I was bleeding. So they said we were riding, so I was just, just like bumping and like I was yelling every time there was a bump because it hurt bad. 
When he awakened in the hospital, his wife Mora was by his side. Even as cold as Belichick can be in times, he's not without a heart. His quarterback was in serious condition in the hospital. Of course he was going to stop by. Brady considered Bledsoe his good friend. He was genuinely concerned. Bledsoe's injury impacted Brady's life like he never could have imagined. I asked Bledsoe what he thought would have happened to Brady if he had not been injured that day. Maybe Bledsoe is right. Who knows what would have happened? The reality is Bledsoe started the season 0-2 after his 5-11 the previous year. His coach did not have his back. He wanted Brady to play, and it might just have been a matter of time before Belichick felt he could make the change without incurring the wrath of Patriot fans or subjecting himself to Kraft second-guessing the move or questioning why he had even hired him. Belichick knew what he had with Bledsoe. He didn't think he can win with him. Brady was an unknown, but Belichick thought he can win with him. Bledsoe's scary injury, which was going to keep him sidelined for months, gave Belichick the perfect opening to switch to Brady. If it didn't happen then, and the Patriots continued to lose, it was inevitable Belichick would switch quarterbacks. Even the Patriots players knew it. Linebacker Teddy Bruschi was great friends with Bledsoe, but he knew which way the wind was blowing in Foxborough. There's probably no way Brady would have been denied. Anyway, knowing what I know about that kid and the work that he would have put in, eventually Drew would have thrown two to three interceptions in a game. And eventually Bill would have put in Tom because Drew was having a bad game. Right. Tom would have buckled up his helmet before he went out there and said to himself, I'm never giving this job back. And I believe that. And then he'd play the last you know, nine minutes of a game and drive the team down for two touchdowns and a field goal. And then after that game, you know Boston, all the talk would have oh, started. Sure. And then Bill would have probably done it then. Drew Bledsoe never started another game for the Patriots. On the next episode of The GOAT, Tom Brady, the first start of his career, the week after Bledsoe's injury, came against Peyton Manning, the first of 17 meetings in what became the greatest rivalry in NFL history. And I'll detail how Manning introduced himself to Brady and how Brady went on to save Bill Belichick from getting fired. I'm Gary Myers, and thanks so much for listening. The GOAT, Tom Brady, is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. This season is written and hosted by me, Gary Myers. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis for Diversion Podcast and Sean Titone for iHeartRadio. Story editing by Scott Waxman with editorial direction from John Tuttle. Editing, mixing, and sound design by Mark Francis. Archival research by Brianne Murphy. Verna Fields is our technical producer and our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. 
Find Diversion on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Diversion Pods. And let us know, what do you think of the show? Send us your questions, your comments, and even your critiques. That's Diversion Pods on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Diversion Pods.